We've got questions on Pope Benedict, monarchy, the worship of presidents, and Charles has an old RTD bus. Welcome to another episode of Off the Menu, now being broadcast and podcast on the Crusade Channel. Talk radio the way it should be at crusadechannel.com. I'm Vincent Franchini from Tumblr House here with a monumental Charles Coulomb. Monumental? Monumental, you mean like Mount Rushmore? Yeah. Like the pyramids? Yes, definitely. Like the, like the Empire State Building? Right. Like the Al Capone building. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, monumental. I'm certainly being, I've become built like a monument anyway. You know, there's a lot more of me than there used to be. No, well, that's that's great. I think here in this month of February, which is dedicated to the worship of not one, not two, but three presidents, uh, bearing in mind that uh, Washington, Lincoln, and Reagan were all born this month, and FDR was born two days before, on January 30th, and if that weren't bad enough, we are actually doing this, ladies and gentlemen, on Lincoln's birthday. Isn't that great? That's wonderful. Yeah, it is. And uh, when you're going to be watching this, it's going to be, although the 12th is his actual birthday, Monday the 13th, in those jurisdictions where it's a holiday, is the actual holiday itself. Where does Lincoln rank on your list of greatest presidents of the United States? Uh, neck and neck with Jefferson Davis. So I'm not sure what that means because Jefferson Davis was not an actual president of the United States. He was an American president. He was an American president. <laughs> okay, so, okay, in this expanded list, where is that? Well, he was president of the Confederate States of America. Yeah, I know. Down that Lincoln was president of the United States, so they were both American presidents. That's fine. I'm asking you for the number on the list. On the, on the list of presidents, you have them numerically listed. What number is that? They share two. Wow. Behind, presumably, Washington? Of course. Okay. Wow. You know very well. That, uh, and then third, naturally, would be Jefferson. Fourth would be Teddy Roosevelt. Because they're on Mount Rushmore. I was going to say, uh, yeah, I was going to press you, press you on the Jefferson one, because I don't, I don't remember a big old section in Puritan's Empire on Jefferson. He's not one of my favorites, but he's on Mount Rushmore. He's got the Jefferson Monument in uh, D.C., where he declares they've got a picture of him or a statue of him enthroned, and it declares on a they've got quotes on the wall. And one of them is, "I have sworn undying enmity upon the uh, toward every oh gosh, I have sworn upon the altar of God undying enmity toward every form of tyranny over the mind of man." Isn't that great? Sounds impressive. What? Why do you think mainstream, 
let's say let's let's say main the mainstream of thirty years ago, the mainstream of thirty years ago liked Jefferson so much. Well, he wrote the Declaration of Independence for starters, uh, and the idea of Jeffersonian democracy was what? something that people like to invoke. What is that? It's uh, democracy like Jefferson wanted. It. Okay. So, I mean, that's it? He wrote the Declaration of Independence, and there you go. Well, more than that, as third, uh, he had a big influence at the Constitutional Convention. As third president of the United States, he changed his uh, ideology somewhat. Before he was president, he had been what was called a strict constructionist. But when he became president, he became a loose constructionist. Yeah, I know. Everybody, once they get the big seat, they completely turn their back on all their values. Well, why not? I remember I mean, you, make values, that, you make that point for Andrew Jackson as well. Values are only important to get you into power. Once you're there, you don't really need values. What are they going to do for you? They're going to hinder you. This reminds me, so this is where we were at in the episode, I somehow remember the name, Regulars versus Reformers. I think we are talking about LaGuardia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, those blasted regulars. We need to get them out of power, get us reformers in, and then we'll tip the till. You know, that's the way it works. I mean, I remember Groucho Marx in the immortal film Duck Soup, where he becomes president of a country in Central Europe. And he sings, the last guy who ruled this place, he didn't know what to do with it. But if you think this country is bad off now, just wait till I get through with it. If I find out they're taking graft and I don't get my share, we'll line them up against the wall and pop goes the weasel. Wow. I think that's beautiful. It's a declaration of principle. From a man who could not be moved. Well, apparently he was moved by the presidency. Song, yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, okay. I, and I I would just say, uh, I'm sure other politicians would agree, my ideals are not for sale. But they do rent at extremely reasonable rates. Groucho said that? No, but I could imagine him doing it. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Um. I don't know, Chuff. Where would you like to take this episode? Calendar or? I well, there are a lot of ways we can go. We could take the bus. Uh, oh. Would you like to take the bus? To take a little ride on the RTD. Yeah, the good old fashioned RTD bus. Yeah. Well, take the ninety three down Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah, on the pre-show, I forgot how we were talking about that, but the metaphor of you as one of the old buses that they brought in when everyone was taking the bus in the seventies due to high gas prices. Yeah, they put they brought them out of the uh, out of the secluded RTD barn and thrust them back into service, and they didn't have air conditioning and they were kind of clunky, but uh, they worked. You know, they got people from one place to another. And you see, they, they had to do this because in the face of the uh, gas explosion prices and the shortages, a lot more people were taking the bus. So they brought all these old things and we rode them. And I now that I'm retired, 
uh, you know, for basically doing anything anymore. I feel like one of these old buses. But like those old buses, I'm willing to be taken out of the bus barn and put back into service. Oh, I remember how we got that to that on the pre-show because everyone was remarking how they're sort of off balance because you don't have any books back there. And I remarked, like, are you even doing anything anymore? And no, apparently, said, no, and you I, confirmed, I, no, you're not. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm completely retired. I'm not doing podcasts anymore. I'm just sitting here, you know, just me and my memories, thinking about the golden olden days, remembering when, you know, we had a podcast, we'd get, we'd get comments. I wrote books, I wrote articles. Now I'm just sort of here in splendid isolation, living out what's left of my life. You know, it's pretty much it. I'm basically like a retiree in Miami Beach. Is that how it's like to retire in Miami Beach? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's why you'll notice I'm wearing a sweatshirt and khaki shorts and sneakers with black socks. I don't think that's what it's like to retire there because, you know, we're always watching the Hallmark Channel. And then when it's late night, they have that. I forgot the name of the show, but it's the three old ladies. Um, oh, the and, Golden Girls. The Golden Girls. And aren't I'm they retired in Miami girl. Beach? They sure are. I but feel I'm like, never going to be a Golden Girl. I feel like they do things. Well, they, they do. They get into. They're, young, yeah. they're younger than I am. <laughs> no, they're not. No, they, That's they, not they, true. They're kids. They're just kids. Betty White's character was was pretty neat because she was so mentally challenged. Every day was a struggle for her. And uh, she used to go on and on about her hometown of St. Olaf, Minnesota. And I've never seen this. I actually never watched the show. But uh, during COVID, I was trapped with um, these clips of many different things people send me. And one of them was this woman being asked, this other person from Minnesota, being asked by the two other Golden Girls about St. Olaf. And she said, well, I wouldn't want to say everyone there was an idiot, but they have more than their share. Yeah. No. Okay. And they, uh, one scene, I did see a clip uh, was where the um, Italian mother of B. Arthur uh, was going on about how in her native village in Italy they had the Dance of the Virgins, where you know young women would, would dance and so forth. And so the Betty White character says, oh, we had something just like that in, uh, in uh, St. Olaf. And they'd be there on the dock of the lake sort of flopping around. Oh, no, that was the Dance of the Sturgeons. That's weird. You think so? Do you think people don't get weird when they turn when they retire? I guess they get weird. Do you are are you embracing the weird or are you trying to resist oh, the weird? No, resist. Are you insane? I've been embracing the weird since I was a boy. I I lived in Hollywood. What was I gonna do? I, I guess I, I guess true when you live in Hollywood, resistance is futile when it comes exactly. to the weird. Yeah, the weird were like the Borg. Yeah, you know, and we just had to accept our being dominated by the weird. And I have to say, it's helped me a lot in dealing with the world as we know it today. Life skills. Yeah, 
Life skills. Little did I know Criswell House was the perfect preparation for living in the 21st century. That See, was providential. Guys, that was nothing oh, short of providential. Completely providential. You know, a lot of you guys out there, you expect things to make sense. You know, but I learned as a young lad in the house of Criswell that no, no, you don't get that. You don't have that right. Makes sense. Puh. So, you know, when I hear our masters drivel, you guys are like, that doesn't make any sense. They can't possibly believe that. Whereas I'm just, mm, isn't that sweet? You see how much happier I am? Fuchsia pilled. Big pardon? Fuchsia pilled. Fuchsia pilled. Precisely right. Pop. <laughs> you know who else is fuchsia pilled? Who? Old Rose. Tyrone's yeah. fuchsia pilled. Lydia and the and all the girls in the secretarial pool are fuchsia pilled. Clyde, the elevator operator, is fuchsia pilled. Everyone except you at the Tumblr House Tower is fuchsia pilled. I don't like whenever you guys mention old Rose because you're trying to use sentiment and sort of inject human emotion and sympathy. But as a manager, I need to reject all of those things and be objective and just have but everyone it, do their respective job. She does her, her, her job. Maybe a little slower than she did 40 years ago, but, you know. See, I don't like talking about this. I don't like the way where you're taking my mind when it comes to old Rose. She's a worker like everyone else. That's yeah, it. she is. She just has to do it at her own pace. She gets everything done eventually. So she doesn't stop until 3 a.m. because it takes forever to clean for it, to clean now. She's willing to sacrifice for the company. You know, because I, I've asked her about it. I said, do you resent having to stay so late cleaning up because you, you're so slow? She says, oh, no, Don Giovanni, always good to me. I the Don, always take care of me. No, no, he's good. And so she keeps mopping. But, I mean, again, a younger woman might have uh, the whole third floor mopped in, what, 20 minutes. Takes old Rose maybe two hours. You know, it takes time. She's got to, she uh, knocks off at 3 a.m. She's got to come back at uh, 3.30 p.m. to get started. Yeah. So, you know, she works 12 and a half hours every day. But she's only gets paid for an eight-hour day. But she doesn't mind because it's for the company. Well, there are a lot of benefits. That strictly really <laughs> she's of, happy. You know, I mean, if you're just counting the dollar figure, you know, I mean, there's all these things on the side that you're just not counting. I'm not going to get into it, okay? I don't really want to like um, be prideful our, about it, but and we we don't want to expose our dirty laundry in front of the public. I get it, but let's just say that if Old Rose ever complained to the Labor Relations Board. You'd have a problem. That's all I'm saying. But she so loves the company, she would never dream of it. I don't know. I feel like we've come a long way with the Labor Relations Board. I mean, we got through the whole cocooning thing. Yes. Um, so we did that. I feel the, 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 estimation, the estimation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's something when you close up an entire skyscraper, all the employees. 
weave cocoons and hide in the corners. <laughs> it is it is a little scary when that happens, I have to admit, especially to outsiders, you know, they they don't really understand what's going on. <laughs> they come in, they see these large man sized cocoons. And you have to explain, well, it's summer and we've only got a skeleton staff. Everyone else is estimating. <laughs> they, they have a hard time grasping the concept. But I think estimation is perfectly fine. And, you know, here in the depth of winter here in Europe, uh, I, I, I'd like to estimate myself a little bit. It is cold. So I'd, I'd be willing to retreat into the warmth of a cocoon. <sighs> Me too. All right. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I felt the spinnerets beginning to turn in, the, in my back, but never mind. All right. Let us move on to State of the Week. All right. What do we got? We've got the state of New Mexico. Oh, New Mexico. Where I went to college, one of our 50 is missing. That's what they always said. Wait, what what well, is because, that? One, what? Well, it was a running, uh, running gag in, I think, the Santa Fe newspaper. Because uh, people from New Mexico are very often confused with people from Mexico. So, like, if you said you were living in Albuquerque, oh, did you need a passport? That kind of thing. Oh, I see. So there was this newspaper, this is going back 40 years ago, but there was a regular newspaper column called One of Our 50 is Missing. And it would be New Mexicans recounting their adventures of being you know, told this stuff. But I think in order to describe New Mexico adequately, we need to begin in the southeastern part of the state. The so-called state plains, the Llano Estacado, and the the capital city of the state plains, also called Little Texas. You guessed it, Roswell, New Mexico, which supports my alma mater, New Mexico Military Institute in beautiful Roswell. Now, Roswell, New Mexico, has gotten a uh, reputation because of the. Uh, supposed UFO that crashed. <clears throat> the crash there. And, you know, as an alumnus of Animal Mine, with my brother and sister alumni and alumnae, I resent that very much. I really do. For one thing, people are always asking us about the UFO that crashed. They never ask about the UFO that accomplished our... its mission. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. So Roswell has been the uh, uh, location of two, count them, two a television series about the adventures of alien teenagers uh, living in Roswell. I'll tell you, any teenager living in Roswell feels like an alien, and that has nothing to do with UFOs. It's just it's a remote town. It's actually the area around is flat as flat can be, and that always kind of made me think of the Twilight Zone. But the town itself is nice enough, and they've got uh, all sorts of local cultural things. They've got a museum and a ballet company and an opera company and a theatrical troupe, all kinds of stuff. 
it's actually a pleasant little town. Um, in my day, we had a movie theater called The Plains. But The Plains Movie Theater is no longer a movie theater. It is now the UFO Museum. So if you really want to get, you know, kind of alienated, you go there. But Roswell is only a small part of the, of the glorious state of New Mexico. If you started out in El Paso, Texas, and went north along the Rio Grande, El Paso was under the Spanish, it was actually part of New Mexico. It's part of Texas now, but you'd go north along the Rio Grande, and you'll, there are all these wonderful old Spanish-American towns uh, with really lovely old churches. And in, uh, but at the very southern tip, you might say, is the town of Mesilla, uh, New Mexico, uh, which is an old, old Spanish town. And next to it is, or nearby, not next to it, is an Indian village called, uh, you know, I can't, but, but it's in the greater Las Cruces metropolitan area. Tiguas, something like that? I don't remember. Anyway, so you go north, and you'll see all sorts of interesting uh, uh, Spanish and half-Spanish towns. But the real excitement in New Mexico is the northern part of the state. Even south of Albuquerque, you begin running into the Pueblo Indian reservations. And the Pueblo reservations that come from there all the way up to the south, to the north, to Taos, fascinating, fascinating places. And each of them is presided over, incidentally, by not a chief, but a governor. And the governors of the Pueblos each have two sets of canes, one given by the King of Spain and one by President Lincoln uh, to show their feudal relationship with first the kings of Spain and then with the United States. Uh, there's also, of course, the Navajo Reservation that uh, leaps over into, uh, into New Mexico and the uh, Mescalero Apache uh, down in the south who have a... Uh, incredible hotel and casino called the Inn of the Mountain Gods, which is quite nice. Then you come to Albuquerque. Now, Albuquerque is a big, sprawling place, uh, but it has a very lovely old town with San, uh, San Felipe de Neri Church, a lot of really wonderful restaurants, especially if you like Mexican food, or New Mexican food, which is a distinct uh, cuisine all its own. I mean, it's similar to Mexican, but it's different. Uh, you go north from Albuquerque, you'll come to the state capital at Santa Fe. And Santa Fe is, uh, along with St. Augustine, is one of our oldest cities in the country. And there are a lot of old churches and old buildings and so forth. The Cathedral of Santa Fe, however, is not Spanish style like so many others. It is French Gothic. And although it was horribly... Uh, recovated the interior uh, by Archbishop Sanchez many years ago, you can still see the in outline what the French Archbishop Lamy did when he built it. Um, there's the uh, Loretto Chapel that has the spiral staircase that some have said was built by St. Joseph. Uh, La Fonda, the inn on the on the plaza, the palace of the governors. Um, 
which was just what you might guess, the residence of the Spanish governor in Santa Fe. Uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful town. There's so much to see there. But wait, there's more. Because northernmost of Mexico, north of Santa Fe, is a mountainous area. And it's filled with little Spanish villages that have an incredible culture all their own, uh, like the Cajuns and Creoles of southern Louisiana. Uh, and similarly, devout Catholics. And just a marvelous, marvelous area. So if you take the high road to Taos from Santa Fe, you go through the towns of Santa Cruz, uh, Truchas, Las Trampas, each of which have uh, very old, very beautiful Spanish churches. And then you'll finally arrive at Taos, which is a fascinating town. It has a, a Pueblo Indian uh, reservation nearby. The town itself is very beautiful. It's attracted a lot of new age types. So there's a touch of... Uh, a touch of Mount Shasta or Sedona in Taos, but just a touch. It's not overwhelming. Um, and if you go north of there, you'll come to the town of Chimayo, which has the miraculous uh, chapel with the healing dirt and also the uh, chapel of the Black Christ of Esquilipas. Uh, the... Um, Hispanos of northern New Mexico, as I say, are people under their own. They speak a very old Spanish dialect and are really, really a, a wonderful bunch. Uh, I fell in love with the state of New Mexico when I was there. And although southern New Mexico is a bit ugly, northern New Mexico really deserves the title of land of enchantment with its mountainous uh, uh, terrain, its beautiful trees, and so forth. Um, there is, to conclude, there is an area near Taos called, don't be shocked, Taos Ski Valley, which has a lot of Germans and Swiss and Austrians and other people who came because of the skiing and set up hotels and so on. But it is filled, what is the name of the tree? I can't think of the name. It's, I've just drawn a blank. But the leaves turn gold in the autumn. And Taos Ski Valley is filled with these things. Aspen, that's what they are. They turn gold. And the first time I ever saw it, I thought of J.R.R. Tolkien, the old name of Lothlorien, which Lothlorien, you may remember in Elvish, was the dream flower. But its original name was Laurel Lindoranan, the Valley of the Singing Gold. And Laurel Lindoranan was the name that came to mind the first time I ever saw Towski Valley. Oh, I should have mentioned way down in the south, Rio Doso, and uh, the the race course there, but I didn't. So now you know. So all in all, ladies and gentlemen, I do love the state of New Mexico. I only lived there two years, but I visited a number of times since, and I really, I really love it. So there you go, New Mexico, United States of America. I remember. Um... <clears throat> We had a question a long time ago about the most the cities that are most culturally Catholic in America. And I remember right at number one was a Mexican uh, a new uh, a town from New Mexico. 
that you yeah. said was most close? What what town was that? Well, probably been Santa Fe. Oh, Santa Fe. Okay. Um, That's so, a major city. I see. Well, I, I don't know if that was part of the question in terms of major city. I, I got the impression that it was a smaller town. Uh, yeah, so, it might have been it might have been uh, Truchas or Las Trampas or someplace like that. I see. Okay. And what oh, I, made you say I, I, that? I forgot yeah. I forgot Las Vegas, New Mexico, which is nothing at all like Las Vegas, Nevada. It's also way up north and well worth seeing. Well, what what uh, made me say it is that, as I say, the Hispanos of northern New Mexico are like the Cajuns and the Creoles of southern Louisiana. Uh, they've maintained, to some degree, their Catholic faith and their uh, their integrally Catholic culture mm. in a way that you just don't see in most of the country. So when you say they've maintained it, like what, what what's the outward-looking science of that? What does that mean? Well, what that means is that you have images of the saints all over the place. Uh, it means that uh, Christmas has its own particular customs. It means that uh, Holy Week and Easter are big. Lent is big. Um, you know, that's yeah. Uh, I think. Let me see just a moment. The uh, state holidays in New Mexico. Uh, I'm going to look this up. I think. Um, I think they're for him, not. Uh, let me see. Well, Columbus Day, Thanksgiving Day. Morally, no, they uh, they don't have um, they don't have Good Friday off. I thought they did, but they don't. Some some states do, but not New Mexico. Hmm. So, <clears throat> if there was a person living in Southern California and they're considering going on vacation and exploring, um, going eastward. Let's say the choice was between vac- going on vacation, exploring Arizona, or going and exploring New Mexico. Which one would you recommend more? Well, I'm fond of both, but I would say New Mexico. Interesting. Okay. I mean, Arizona has a lot of the Grand Canyon, Navajo country, the Canyon de Chez, and then going south, and of course, Sedona, if you want to get in touch with your New Age roots, Flagstaff and all that. And then, um, if you go um, if you go south, Tucson and the Spanish Christian South, there are great places. But New Mexico, I'm, I'm I love. Oh, and you know, I, I left out Gallup, New Mexico, hmm. which is in the western part of the state, and is a lot of Indians, Navajo, and so on. But Gallup also has the fabulous El Rancho Hotel. I know what you're asking. What is so what? I'm glad you asked that question. The historic El Rancho Hotel, a unique Southwest experience in the midst of the American West. I'm looking at the lobby. I've been here before, all the Indian art and all that kind of thing. Uh, it says about the El Rancho. Uh, 
when you stay at the El Rancho Hotel, you'll be sleeping in a room where a movie star slept. See? Uh, but the restaurant, oh, my, oh, mio. I love the restaurant. Huevos Rancheros, a Rancho Classic. Monument Valley enchiladas. Monument Valley is what we're saying. Huevos Rancheros. I'd love that. I'd love some of that right now. I love Mexican food, ladies and gentlemen. I really do. All right. Um. But uh, steak, and en- steak and enchilada? How would you like that? It sounds delicious. Hmm. How about uh, French fries? I love French fries. Grilled steak and shrimp. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's all. That's all good. I could go. I could stare at this for hours, and I'm not going to. I'm coming back to you. I'm pulling my head out of the past. All right. Uh, pause for channel identification. Uh, this is off the menu with Charles Coulomb. We just finished talking about New Mexico. Um, Off the Menu is now being broadcast and podcast on the Crusade Channel. Talk radio the way it should be at crusadechannel.com. All right. Yeah, the Crusade Channel comes to us from New Orleans, Louisiana. Yeah. You better believe that uh, Mike Church and the gang are gearing up for Mardi Gras. You better believe. That's right. What are they going to do? What do you think they do? Well, I think they probably are going to go to come into work on Mardi Gras the day before Ash Wednesday, in uh, Mardi Gras masks and uh, throw coins and beads at each other. Wow. That'd be my guess. Okay. Well, it's better than going into cocoons, isn't it? Cocoons are, I mean, that's relaxing, right? I mean, it's, there's no finer relaxation than cocooning up for the, for the summer. Shooting the silk out of your spinnerets and just <laughs> wrapping yourself up. And the next thing you know, it's autumn <laughs> and the weather's turned cool. <laughs> All right. Um, no memes this week. Sorry about that, fellas. Um, we'll go straight into the questions. Okay. Fragen, as we say off Deutsch. All right. Uh, Connor sent in a bunch of uh, Pope Benedict questions. Um, okay. He says, first question, what do you think are some of uh, the biggest accomplishments of Benedict, uh, either as Pope or before? Well, the very top would be Samorum Pontificum and his uh, establishment of, uh, shall we say, a liturgical peace in the church, which has been uh, at, at the same time allowing the malefactors to quietly fade into the sunset, although sadly they didn't. Um, the establishment of the ordinariates, very, very key thing. Uh, his improvement of relations with the Orthodox. Uh, That's interesting. I, I haven't heard a lot of talk about that. Well, he went to Constantinople and he visited with uh, uh, Patriarch Bartholomew and they they got along very well, and then he um, he also uh, during his uh, I mean he wrote a lot of uh, very important things, but during his I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday 
afternoon uh, catechism, catechism, shall we say. He explored the different books of the New Testament and then the Church Fathers, and then he went into the scholastics, and then he uh, unfortunately resigned. But each of those uh, sermons about a particular uh, church figure are really, really good and really should be read. And he also pointed out that he, uh, he took a very adult approach to Vatican II. On the one hand, accepting the fact that it had changed various teachings, uh, but on the other hand, maintaining that um, these the things that were changed were not in themselves infallible. Well, of course, if you say that, that means the changes themselves aren't infallible either, which, shall we say, took the whole thing down a notch from being an argument about who's a good Catholic to being just, is it true or not? Mm. Um, and his hermeneutic of continuity idea certainly established a broad plane where uh, traditionalists and conservatives could coexist quite happily. Unfortunately, the hermeneutic of rupture, which he condemned, uh, I don't think he really appreciated how powerful it was. Mm. Right. So could you explain for everyone the hermeneutic of continuity? Well, the hermeneutic of continuity was the idea that Vatican II and everything the church had done since had to be understood in connection with everything that had happened before. In other words, Vatican II did not, it was not supposed to be a sudden change in everything in the church. And it was not supposed to be a break with Catholic tradition. And so uh, he maintained that the hermeneutic of continuity required us to look at Vatican II and everything since in the light of Catholic tradition. Whereas the hermeneutic of rupture said, it's a new church now, we own it, we can do anything we want because we're in charge, and we can play patty cake, and we can do everything, because we own the show now. So he condemned that, and he said it was a bad idea and wrong. But he gave the impression, if, um, if you read the uh, uh, greeting to the curia at Christmas of 2005, he gave the impression that this was only a crazy idea held by academics, you know, in a few places. Whereas we knew then, and we certainly know now, it was held by a lot of very stupid moronic people in high places. Hmm. But you know, there's something about stupid moronic people in high places. It's very democratic. We're getting away from the old idea that people in charge should have brains in their heads and be better than the rest of us. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, what is something you wish Benedict would have done or something he shouldn't have done as Pope or before? Abdicate. He should not have abdicated, okay. No, 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 no. He should not have. Do you think that was a mistake? Because I, I read in his last will and testament, uh, the book I was talking about uh, before, he prayed a lot about that. And it wasn't, um, there wasn't any question in his mind. I'm sure there wasn't. 
But the fact is that the possibility was there from the very beginning when he said, pray for me that I do not flee for fear of the wolves. But a pope has no right to do that. Not really. You've been elected pope. And you're stuck with it. It's like getting married. You know? If you don't think you're up to the requirements of married life, you don't dump the check. You just have to try to maintain, that's all. Wow. I mean, I realize that he saw up close and personal the decay of John Paul II in his latter years, and I'm sure he, he didn't want to go through that, and I'm sure he didn't want the church to go through that. But the sad truth of the matter is the best Episcopal appointments that John Paul II made were in the last year of his pontificate, which, oddly enough, was the year after the publication of his last book, in which he said one of his major mistakes was not paying enough attention to Episcopal appointments. So it's almost as though in the period after he wrote the book, that John Paul, feeble as he was, and he was feeble, tried to make up during that period for what he had uh, neglected before. And I'm not saying this to bag on him. He said it himself. I think the church would be a lot better off. Oh, sorry, not a lot better off. I think we would be a lot worse off if John Paul II had not made the appointments he made in the last year of his life. And see, Benedict tried to resign as head of the Congregation of Divine, uh, the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, three times under John Paul. John Paul wouldn't let him do it. So he already had a predilection to leaving. Right. Um, he couldn't under the under John Paul II, but a pope can do whatever he wants. He can set himself on fire if he likes. I don't recommend that any of them actually do, but they could. Um, sort of through my lens of life, I feel like, and based on my personal experiences, I feel like sometimes God's will is done uh, not always by giving someone grace to do something courageous and uh, virtuous, but withholding the grace and the withholding of the grace to, you know, to do something and, and, which causes kind of a problem. Uh, well, I mean, it could, but it then could that brings well about be. God's will. I mean, does it work like that? You know what I mean? Well, like, it, like, were we destined could, to have this? It could, it could well be that the resignation of Benedict the Sixteenth was a punishment visited on the yeah, Catholic people. That's sort of what for I their, mean for yeah. their infidelity. Yeah. But of course, that's that's not the question I was given. Right. The question I was given was, "What do I wish he hadn't done?" Right. That's what I wish he hadn't done. I see. Now there's there. I wish he hadn't gotten rid of the tiara from the papal coat of arms. I wish he had been crowned with the tiara. I wish he hadn't given up the title of Patriarch of the West. But then I wish Pope Francis hadn't given up the title of Vicar of Christ. Of course, if you're going to do that, if you're going to give up a title, you might consider giving up part of Peter's Pence. I mean, well, think about it. Let's say you've got four jobs, right? You're vice president in charge of sales. You're managing director of accounts. 
your uh, recruitment director, and your development director. You give up one of those jobs. Shouldn't you be paid less? See? So for every title dropped, Peter's pence should also be, you know, go down in, in amount. Well, that's just a title. It's not actually work per se. Oh, you know, do you think, do you think Vic, being vicar of Christ wasn't work? Maybe that's why I got rid of it. I don't know. Could have been too much of an effort for him. All right. Um, Better vicar of Christ than vixen of Christ. Don't even say. Don't even say that. All right. Third well, question. You got, what have you got against female foxes? Don't. We're moving on. <laughs> <laughs> the vicar and his vixen. That's the female word. Don't, female vicar. Okay. You didn't know that. Just. Stop. Just stop. And that's why we've got a lady vicar general of a diocese. She's actually properly the vixen general. Okay. All right. Third question. Since there seems to be an express lane for Vatican II popes being canonized recently, do you foresee Benedict becoming a saint relatively quickly, or do you feel it will take some time? I do not deny the validity of these canonizations, but when they definitely move faster than people like Blessed Kaiser Carl or Joan of Arc, um, if when he, if and when he is canonized, what things do you think he would be a patron saint of? All right, fine. I'll answer the question, but I'm going on record as opposed to any to vulpophobia in any way, shape, or form. Vulpophobia? What f- fear of foxes? Yes, uh, antipathy, enmity toward foxes. And that extends to female foxes, to vixens. Okay. Do you consider yourself a vulpophobe? I'm not scared of foxes. We don't have foxes in California. That's not what Cheech and Sharon used to say, but never mind. Anyway, <laughs> the, are you okay? You're sighing a lot all of a sudden. Why are you sighing? Is everything all right? That's, <laughs> that is... Why are you being so particular, Charles? I'm sorry my sighing offends your senses. It doesn't offend me. It makes you worry. Oh, are you worried about me, Charles? Is I, that I, what yes, you're doing? I'm concerned. <laughs> I mean, what sighing could be a sign of you know, general discontent. You're, you're worrying and concerned is the equivalent of a shark smelling blood in the water. Yeah, I know. It nailed you. That's it. Dead on. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you've hurt my feeling. (laughs) My single feeling has been really damaged. Thanks a lot, boss. I don't know how I'm supposed to go on now, but I'll try. All right. Fine. Vulpophobe. Anyway. (laughs) The... uh, no, seriously, despite the vulpophobia our boss has demonstrated, ladies and gentlemen, we'll, we'll continue. Uh, the thing is that uh, if he were a saint, I guess he would be the, the patron of the probably the, uh, the papal ceremonial office because he uh, slowly but surely was trying to renew 
papal symbolism and ceremonial and so on. Um, I would say that he was, uh, which is another great accomplishment of his. Uh, I would say he would be patron of uh, the CDF itself. Uh, and he would be patron of uh, theologians, uh, a patron of theologians, because there are certainly others and greater, but he would certainly be one of their patrons. Um, and possibly of the small town in Bavaria he came from. Okay, well, definitely that one, I would say. Oh. Okay. Uh, fourth question. Now that Benedict has passed, what might this mean for those who have doubted Francis's validity since 2013? Do you see them reconciling or doubling down? Uh, also, how do you foresee Pope Francis reacting from here on out? Do you well, feel... Is it, that's a, a separate question. Yeah, separate question. So let's start. Let's do the first one. Uh, the people have doubted Francis's validity. Well, the so-called many vacantists, as they've been called, uh, a group of them held a conclave in Rome. Really? In a hotel. Yeah, they sure did. I don't know. You'll never guess who they elected as pope. Michael? No, he's dead. Jorge Bergoglio. I don't even know what you're saying anymore. All right. Listen carefully. A group of Benedictists, in response to Pope Benedict's death, constituted themselves a conclave in a hotel in Rome. And the man they elected as Pope was Pope Francis, Jorge Bergoglio. So for them, he's now the Pope, since they have consented to him. Who gets to go to that club? Who gets to invite to that? Uh, whoever got invited. Uh, let's see. But let's I mean, I, I don't understand. Like the authority structure, I, I don't understand. There, oh, there, there, there wasn't any. There wasn't any. So, but there wasn't any. The uh, Benedictists elected Pope Francis or Jorge Bergoglio. Some of them disagreed. Some of them disagreed, but. Uh, Why did they do that? Isn't isn't that surprising to you? Uh, nothing surprises me anymore. Um, let's try Roman Hotel. Uh, yeah, there we go. The. Uh, Father Fra Alexis Bonolo convened a conclave. Is a Benedictine uh, friar. Uh, so th these are all clerics. Well, let's see. Uh, let me see. Fra Alexis Bonolo. Um, Okay, so this is, uh, it's called the Benevacantus have a Pope, and so do we. This is from 1 Peter 5. We have recently been able to witness an unusual, certainly curious event. That is the convening of a conclave by a group that puts forward the following theory. Benedict XVI never voluntarily renounced the papacy, but stepped aside while continuing to govern the church as Pope. 
But if he wanted to continue to govern the church, why did he leave everything ungoverned? The Benefactists or Sede Impeditists or BIP don't see it that way. Some of them maintain, there are divisions among them, that Benedict was forced into a position to remain silent and inactive, even while maintaining the true office of the papacy. Now, we use these terms, even if today they are no longer valid, as Benedict XVI is no longer with us. Therefore, the Holy See, according to their theory, is no longer impeded, and Benedict as Pope is not really possible, even with all the good uh, will of the deceased pontiff. In death, he cannot be Pope. But is he dead? Because there are some who are not so convinced. Perhaps they think that the Pope has entered into vita impedita to continue to govern the church from heaven. However, most of the BIP Catholics had to accept the fact that he was dead and had to reflect on what would happen from then on. For Brother Alexis Bugnolo, the solution was simple enough to convene a conclave. And he summoned it to a hotel in Rome, inviting all the inhabitants of Rome and surrounding areas, provided they had proof of their belonging to the Catholic Church, to vote. The date set was January 30th, this past Monday. It must be said that the two most representative exponents of this movement in Italy, Alessandro Minutella and Andrea Cianci, did not join Bugnolo's initiative, and instead they decisively disassociated themselves from Bugnolo. Nevertheless, the conclave went ahead. Um, so they um, elected Jorge Mario Bergoglio unanimously. Well, so I, I mean, of course, they just elected. They just what? I mean, they just brought in people from Rome, presumably like normal Catholics. Yeah. But remember, originally the Pope, before we had cardinals and conclaves, the Pope was elected by the people and clergy of the city of Rome. So, why didn't he do that before? I mean, how how did the Benevacontist position? I mean, did they use a conclave, this conclave structure to initiate that position? No, of course not. Uh, the idea was that, uh, for various reasons, depending on who you talk to, Benedict's abdication was um, not valid, and so Benedict remained pope despite the appearance. Basically, uh, Francis is an anti-pope, is what they would say. Anti-popes have been elected by apparent conclaves before. So that's what they would cite as the the background. Okay. Um, how do you foresee Pope Francis reacting from here on out? Uh, do you feel Benedict may have been a restraining influence and Francis might push for the removal of Latin masses more, vigor more vigorously, for example? No, I think it's a very grave possibility, you know. It's like giving a 16-year-old booze, a gun, and keys to the car. Really? So he was. So you're saying Pope Bennett was that much of a restraint? Well, not in the last few years. Not after um, uh, trash can custodians. I think my guess, and it's just a guess on my part, is that originally Francis was willing to wait until Benedict died. Because, basically, trash can custodians and the follow-up stuff directly contradicts what Benedict says in Samorum Pontificum. Of course. You know, you, you they can't both be true. 
So he puts us in the terrible situation of having to decide which one we believe. Well, when you're just about power, uh, with Benedict out of the way, it would have been different. Except that going in for having his colon removed, I think the Holy Father realized that there was a chance that Benedict might outlast him. Which two years ago, it certainly looked like it was very possible. So, uh, now, there's no reason for him not to do anything he feels like doing. Okay. Now, mind you, uh, it still leaves us with the problem that to do anything like that will be a constant... Remember that before Benedict started writing about the Mass and all that, before he was Cardinal Ratzinger, the Tridentine Mass was for the most part suppressed. Tacitly. Yeah. Not legally, tacitly. Yeah. So Benedict pointed out that none of this was valid and that what was true and holy one minute could not suddenly be suppressed as evil the next. Whereas in Trash Can Custodians, uh, the author of it declares just the opposite. It can be, it is, deal. Um, these are opposing positions. You and didn't have that before. In true modernist form, I'm sure that there's no actual refutation of Pope Benedict's quote or an attempt. No, no. Not at all. Not at all. They just they just contradict it without addressing it. Yeah. Um, and this, you see, is a very a very bad thing because, as I say, it puts the individual Catholic in the position of which Pope do you believe, and it would be very hard to trust Francis instead of Benedict in this area. Simply because Benedict knew what he was doing. You know, he was a very, he was a, an extraordinary theologian in his way. He knew a lot of stuff. And uh, Pope Francis does uh, not really impress one as being that well-educated. Um, or, frankly, that good-willed. I mean, Benedict always gave the impression of caring about the flock. Whereas Pope Francis always seems to enjoy shellacking them. The only people he appears to show a great deal of charity to are those outside the church or those who actually oppose the church's teaching. Now that's, you know, that's a hard deal to set up. So I'm afraid what will happen is that increasingly individuals, dioceses, religious orders, to the degree they can, will simply ignore him. But that's, there's a danger there. There's a, tr a terrible danger there. And the church should not be put in this position. Now, unfortunately, or otherwise, as with Stephen VI, there's nobody to say bad touch. You know, it's funny. As you say all these things right now, um, what actually that got me thinking of is how it's paralleling the state so perfectly. Well, yeah, because these things don't happen in isolation. Uh, when Stephen VI was ruling, 
the temporal sphere in Europe was in terrible shape. No. You see, the separation of church and state only exists in people's minds. In the real world, because we're made up of body and soul, the two are inseparably connected. Since all the subjects of the state have souls, and all the subjects of the church have bodies. Yeah. All right. Uh, Connor ends by saying, God bless you both, and God bless Pope Benedict. May 2023 provide you with all the carp chow mein sandwiches and Cincinnati chili you can eat. All right. Let me ask you. Of those three substances, which would you rather have in your bathtub? Wait, so. <laughs> That's a ridiculous question. No, it's not. Would you rather have a carp swimming in your bathtub, or would you rather have your bathtub filled with Cincinnati chili or with chow mein and perhaps uh, hamburger buns? I would like a carp. Ah, you've got on record. After having turned your nose up at this most extraordinary of your ancestral Slovakian Christmas customs, you finally endorsed it. I mean, it's like asking, would you like to be shot, strangled, or take a, or drink hemlock? It's like, okay. I'll take the hemlock for those three. But, uh, all right, fine. Let me ask you a question then. Okay. Let's say you've got the carp in your, bath, in your bathtub. You with me? Right. Uh-huh. All right. And Bobby the carp is happily swimming <laughs> uh, un- with, without any idea that he's intended to be Christmas dinner, Christmas Eve dinner. Okay. You with me so yeah, far? Yeah, I'm with you so far. A happy carp in the bathtub. Yeah. Right. But someone left the window to the bathroom open. Okay. And a passing fox jumped in the window and has snagged the carp. Now, he's dra- he drags the car back up to the windowsill. You come in in time to grab the fox and keep him from making off with the car. Okay. What do you do? To grab the... What do you mean? Like, once I've grabbed the fox? So do, you grab the, do you grab the carp or the fox to keep them? Or do you let the fox make off with the car? I probably would kill the fox. See, you're a vulpophobe. <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't grab the carp because I felt I feel like it would be a tug of war with the fox, and I would want to save the carp. And I don't feel like grabbing a carp would save the carp, so I, I would kill the fox. Yeah. But you've told me you don't like eating carp, so it's more important for you to kill the fox than actually to save the carp. Uh, we're not talking about eating the carp. We're talking about um, saving the carp. I like fish a lot. I like fish both in my stomach and um, swimming in the pond and being happy. All right. Well, let's say Bobby the carp survives this terrible incident, slightly wounded, but you put it back in the tub. Is he going to meet his end on Christmas Eve, or are you going to release him? 
No, it, it depends on the context, right? If it's just me, if the meal is just for me, I would release him into the wild. Uh, so that's like a win-win. Uh, it's a win for me not having to eat carp, and it's a win for him living. Um, but if there's some sort of societal expectation, like the family's going to have carp or, you know, we're with our Slavic relatives, um, then he's going to have to um, go under the guillotine. I see. All right. Last question along these lines. <laughs> would you have... Would you have the fox? Would you have the fox turned into a stole for your wife? (laughs) Um. Yeah, that would be pretty cool, actually. I feel like I feel like that would honor that fox's life by that would be like a trophy or something, right? Because that's what you're supposed to do, isn't it? Like you can't just kill out of malice per se. You have to use, you know, like what you have there, you know. Do people eat fox meat? Is no, fox meat they no, they don't. Good. But I'll, I'll show you what they do with them. Okay, I'll show you this. This might be uh, this might be a little. What's the word I want? A little difficult for the viewers. Uh oh. But uh, here is a fox stole. And ladies, uh, even when I was a kid, they still wore these. Oh, while you're looking, uh, I have to do another channel identification. Um, Off the Menu is now being broadcast and podcast on the Crusade Channel. Talk radio the way it should be at crusadechannel.com. Your official Mardi Gras station. Oh, yeah. Let's see. Here we go. There. Now, would you would you have that made into a stole for your wife to wear around on her shoulders? I don't like that there's a face. What do you mean you don't like that there's a face? Where'd you get that? Is that is that? Um, can I show yeah, that? I got to it off, off. Yeah, I got it off the internet. That's what what fox stoles look like. They're the head and the feet. Well, I remember an English comedian used to go on stage wearing one of those things. And she'd say, do you like it? It's my little bit of vermin. Okay, well, there's a picture of it, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know. I don't like the I like the way it looks. It's a little creepy. I just creepy. like... What if it... Is it supposed to look like that? Are, are furs really supposed to have like that much... Like, it's almost like taxidermy or something with the head. <laughs> Yeah, I know, but that was the fashion. That was how they did uh, fox stoles. I mean, some of them didn't have heads, of course, but the ones with the heads were the most expensive, most elaborate, most glamorous, in fact. You wouldn't mind your wife being glamorous, surely. Well, assuming that that's what glamorous is, you've got a logical fallacy there, buddy. Oh, do I now? You better want to, I want to get that checked out. All right. All right, give me give me just a second <laughs> and I'll show you. I will show you. Ah, there we go. Perfect. Perfect. This uh, you see you've got to you've got to see a, a woman wearing it to really understand how lovely it all is. Oh no. What are you all knowing about? I'm helping you expand your consciousness and stuff. 
depends on what it that entirely the goodness of that of what you just said depends on the direction of the expansion um i'm trying to help you deal with your vulpophobia okay i'll show everybody this now doesn't she look glamorous um all right it's on the screen um I don't know. It's a little much with the legs, to be honest. It it just doesn't work. I feel like I feel like maybe if you're like a Viking and you've got like a like you know their whole outfit is composed of furs or something like that, like like that can work because it's sort of primitive. But she's mixing sort of non-primitive clothing with very primitive clothing, and I don't think it works at all. Maybe she's a shield maiden, a princess of Rohan. In her everyday garb, just you know, walking along the street. Oh, you you don't think shield maidens wore armor all the time, do you? I don't like it. I don't like it. I'm going on record. I don't like. Uh, I don't like that kind of uh, fox. Uh, f- no fox fur. Fox fur. No. All right. Fine. Fox hunting. Yeah or nay? Uh, yay. Yeah. I see. So, so you are a vulpophobe. Yeah, kill them all. All right, Oof. kill wow. all the foxes, Ladies especially. Uh, we, we, we're, we, I thought we had like a big problem with eggs too. Ever hear of fox in the hen house? Hmm? Yeah, yeah. I, got, I remember what the fox said to the farmer when he came in with a shotgun. What would he say? Ain't nobody here but us chickens, boss. <laughs> I care not for foxes. That's the All sad right. truth. Yeah. Vol- Volpophobia reigns supreme at the Tumblr House Tower. All right. I've, I tried. I've done my best. Look how cute they are. All right. Um... All right. Angela has a question. She says, over the past year, I have thought about the relationship between monasticism and monarchy. It seems as though the fates of these two institutions from their rise in the twilight of the Roman Empire to their decline in the 20th century are linked in the providence of God. It seems certain to me that the great monasteries of Europe could not have been built without the great endowments of land and of noble sons and daughters given them by the monarchs. In turn, the great monasteries brought forth the good fruit of evangelization and of civilization. And several holy monarchs, such as St. Henry and our beloved Empress Zita, were nursed in the cradle of monasticism. My question for Charles is this. How vital for a holy monarchy is monasticism and vice versa? Historically, how have the monasteries relied on the monarchs for their protection and prosperity? Well, that it's you know it's a funny question. Uh, you asked, I gave a lecture to a group of monks on this very topic not so long ago, um, and you quite rightly see them as institutions that arose together. Uh, part of the reason for this being that ca- both Catholic monarchy as we know it and mis- and monasticism were the result of seeds, if you like, that were present in Catholicism from the beginning, but couldn't bloom until the faith became legal. And indeed, there wasn't 
in a, well, as you'll see, there wasn't a need for them in a sense. So going back to the Last Supper for a moment, Christ, uh, amongst other things, like founding the priesthood and the uh, Blessed Sacrament and so on, he united his own Davidic kingship, to which he was rightful heir, with the communio of the church. And from that time on, when a Catholic monarch, when a Catholic became a monarch, or when a monarch became a Catholic, uh, they were, in a sense, participating in the kingship of Christ to the degree that they responded to the graces of their office. Now, prior to Constantine, well, in the year 303, Armenia came into the church, into the church as a whole, spearheaded by its king. This is the first time this happened. Uh, Georgia and Ethiopia followed shortly thereafter. And then in 312, uh, Constantine legalizes the church in the Roman Empire. 380 AD or 378, Emperor Theodosius the Great brings in the Edict of Thessalonica, by which the empire becomes Catholic, by which uh, baptism becomes entry into Roman citizenship. And out of which act, the Catholic monarchy that we became familiar with later arose. Now, monasticism was really not necessary as long as the church was a universally illegal organization. Because just by virtue of being a Catholic, you were leading a rigorous uh, monastic life. But after we became legal and then dominant, there needed to be an outlet for those who sought perfection. And that arose first with the hermits like St. Paul, and then with the monks like St. Anthony of Egypt. Well, early on, uh, especially as the empire fell, but certainly in the east, uh, where it continued in Constantinople, early on, the Catholic monarchs became the special patrons of the monks and monasteries. And many, many famous uh, abbeys from Westminster Abbey in London to St. Catherine's in uh, uh, Mount Sinai were founded by uh, Catholic monarchs. And for an obvious reason, often they and noble families uh, would want the monks to pray perpetually for their dead. And so certain favorite abbeys became the resting places of local nobles, local royals. Uh, the various Catholic kings of Europe and the various emperors developed very particular relationships with certain abbeys. And this was true incidentally even in Rome, where while the kings of France and Spain and the Holy Roman Emperor were canons of St. John Lateran, St. Mary Major, and uh, St. Peter's, respectively. The King of England became an honorary monk of the Abbey of St. Paul. And before the Protestant Revolt, the Abbot of St. Paul was the prelate of the Order of the Garter, which is why if you go to the Abbey of St. Paul today, you'll see the Garter's coat of arms with Onisuaki Melipons on the, in the uh, garden wall. Um, so your, your, uh, intuition is quite correct about the close relationship between monarchy and monasticism.
Hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, our final question. Well, it's not really a question uh, so much as um, kind of a, a comment. Um, oh, I guess a request, shall we say. Uh, so this is from Neil, longtime fan, really longtime fan. Um, and so he says, um, this will stray a bit from the usual, and it is not a question. Uh, but I'm always on the lookout for an encouraging word for my daughters. Uh, 14 years ago, I came into the church as a convert. I was m a married Baptist then and literally heard the voice of God calling me to conversion. My wife continues to be Baptist and shows no sign of conversion herself. I have since fathered three daughters, 14, 10, and 8. And in order to keep the peace in our marriage, I allowed the children to be raised and baptized in her church. I have prayed for 14 years for their conversions, many years going to Mass by myself. And now they are on track to do that. My wife has allowed this probably to keep the peace, though I know she isn't altogether happy about it. However, there are many obstacles in our way, and it would take too long to go into all of them. Let's just say that the world is against it with schedule conflicts and the busy life of children now. I don't like it, but there is nothing I can do. I hope and pray for them every day. We like to listen to you and Vincent on Wednesday evening on the way to their CCE classes. We live 30 minutes away from the nearest parish, so it's a natural thing for us to do because they love your stories. Could you, Charles, pray for them and for me and give them a word of encouragement? Pray for my wife's conversion, so this becomes easier on us. Also, they would like to hear you sing Jeepers Creepers at some point during the video. I don't want to put you on the spot or anything. Just bust it out whenever. We'll be listening. Jeepers Creepers, where'd you get those peepers? Jeepers Creepers, where'd you get those eyes? How's that? That was good. All right. Well, let's say a Hail Mary for his intentions. Yeah. Santa Maria, Mother Day, Oro Pernobis Peccatoribus, Nunc et in Oro Moris Nostrae. Amen. Nomine Patris, Fili, and Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Well, uh, a story. Once upon a time, there were three little girls who lived a long ways away from Austria. And they were going to class to come into the Catholic Church with their father every Wednesday. Well, it so happened that there was a recorded podcast they used to like to listen to when they would drive on the show. And the girls were 14, 10, and 8 years old. And as they rode along one day, to their shock and horror, they were listening to the podcast. And the person who spoke said, I know about three little girls on their way to CCE right now as we speak this very moment. And they were shocked, absolutely shocked that the man inside the radio knew who they were. But he encouraged them to get to class, to learn the lessons, and to get received into the church. 
And while it's not the very best reason to do so, he suggested that they suggest to their mother that she come along to find out what this new religion they were going into was all about. Uh, and if she would do that, maybe she would like what she heard. Well, the little girls were shocked and surprised, as I say, that this this voice from beyond said this. But bad and strange and peculiar as that occurrence was, it wasn't as strange as what happened almost immediately afterwards. The voice started singing, Jeepers, creepers, where'd you get those peepers? Jeepers, creepers, where'd you get those eyes? And they were shocked because it was a song they liked, and they had no idea that he would sing it. So they happily drove to the church. Class began, and they were able to put out of their mind that strange episode when the man on the radio spoke directly to them. That's a wonderful story. You like that? I like that a lot. That was very beautiful. Wow. Well, speaking of beautiful, there is something else we have to tackle before we uh, before we adjourn. What is that? Well, it's February. Now, February is a number of things. It's the month of the Holy Family. It's Black History Month. But it's also a month in which not one, not two, but three presidential birthdays occur. Wow. They are George Washington on the 22nd, Abraham Lincoln on the 12th, today, the very day that we're uh, broadcasting, that we're podcasting, although the people will hear it tomorrow, which is the legal holiday, and then uh, February 6th, Ronald Reagan's birthday, and January 30th, of course, was Franklin Delano Roosevelt's birthday. So this is a good time to think about how Americans traditionally idealized and idolized the office of president. To this day, not only are there a number of monuments and so forth to them, not only are there graves, sacrosanct places, and you know, every year the sitting president has a wreath sent to the grave of a president whose birthday it is. So like today, the White House would have sent a wreath to uh, Lincoln's tomb in Illinois. And on the 22nd, they'll, somewhat, they'll send a wreath to uh, Washington's uh, grave at Mount Vernon. Wow. Yeah. So the thing is, as you saw with Mount Rushmore, we do tend to idealize them. Uh, the... Um, National Park Service, uh, in their website, has a section on presidents. And this is what they say. They've got guides to the various presidential homes and museums and all that. American presidents seem bigger than life, but many were just ordinary citizens who found themselves in the right place at the right time. They had the right ideas and qualities to become president of the United States. The National Park Services preserves the journeys that influence these leaders and protects the experiences that have grown our nation. Discover the places and stories of presidents before, during, and after their time in office. And that is 
Mark Hale to the Chiefs. And you know where that comes from? What? The presidential march, Hail to the Chief. Nice, yeah. Yeah. And so, for many Americans, many of the presidents are almost saints, certainly heroes. Isn't this uh, sort of a natural occurrence? I mean, in, in a sense, I mean, so for obviously it's part of the American civic religion. Yeah. Uh, but um, wouldn't any sort of like post enlightenment like state kind of do this? That's continuing. Uh, not really. I mean, you have statues, of course. But you didn't have anything like the adulation of prime ministers that we have for the presidency. So, so the in the United Kingdom, it is not in this sort of manner. Not for prime ministers. It is to a degree for the king, but that's a whole other kettle of wax. I mean, uh, see, that's the funny thing: the cultures of the presidency is almost an unconscious imitation of the cultures of monarchy. Right. Except that it's not supposed to be. Well, see, th that's why I figured it was standard because, you know, post-enlightenment, right. after the age of kings, you have to, I don't see what there is if you don't do that. Well, what there is is the idealization of the country as a whole. Is that what some countries but, do? Well, yeah, the French do it. I mean, they don't. They really don't idealize their presidents at all. Okay. Uh, De Gaulle, to a degree, but only by Gaullists. But he was the founder of the Fifth Republic, you see. Uh, Germany, no. Okay. Italy, no. Portugal, no. Austria, God, no. So do you feel that's in a sense, for the state, is that a strength, a weakness, or just kind of weird? I and mean, how would you all, classify All three. That? All, all three. three, actually. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, a strength, in some ways, a weakness, and in some ways, just weird. Uh, because, I mean, the, the take, if you will, those presidents whose uh, culti are the most developed, Washington, Lincoln, uh, I would argue Teddy Roosevelt, JFK, and uh, FDR, and Reagan. Now, there's a lot of ideological division amongst these men. But their devotees adore them. And, you know, it's interesting. If you go to the um, uh, libraries slash museums and other places associated with the different presidents, they are staffed by people who idolize them. I mean, that makes sense. If, if you were going to go to, say, the Nixon Museum, uh, you'd be a little put off if the docents and everyone kept telling you what a crook Nixon was. Of course, you're going to emphasize his better points and so on. You'd expect that. But there's an inherent contradiction there because the presidency is a political office, not a, a neutral one. 
when monarchy was effective, politics as we think of it didn't exist. And in those crowned republics that we still have, like Britain and Spain and Sweden and all that, the whole point of the monarch is to be above and beyond politics. Right. So this kind of uh, idealization of a specifically political figure, now, which you would see, to be fair, you would see in dictatorships. Yeah, okay. But I don't think you see it in a country that is not professionally a dictatorship. I don't think you see it the way we do it anywhere else. Do you feel that aspect of our culture is eroding and that won't be so much that won't be as reinforced anymore no, moving forward? I, uh, yeah, I, I think I think it's definitely decaying as the whole civic religion is. I mean, the respect to the flag, you know, the love of the Constitution and all this kind of stuff, it's all falling to pieces. The, the woke attacks on the founding fathers and so on and so on and so on. Um, which, you know, it leaves one a little bit of a quandary because on the one hand, objectively speaking, the civic religion wasn't true. And in a lot of ways, adherence to it in some areas damaged the Catholic faith. But by the other, on the other hand, another standard, it did allow the country to function because every country has to have a dominant philosophy, a state church, so to speak, just to exist. Uh, ideally, if you're going to get rid of the worship of Jupiter, you start worshiping Christ. Unfortunately, we're in a situation where Jupiter is being dethroned, but he's not being replaced with anything real. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that's that's my mixed reaction, I guess. Because it's like, okay, in a sense that's good, but in a sense it's hugely destabilizing. But then at the same time we need to destabilize to get more Catholic. But at the same time, life is never that easy. So <laughs> there, no. there, it's really complicated, right? There, All these yeah, things start rushing into your mind. Um, it's very complicated. As things stand... Catholics are the last people on earth to evangelize from Pope to, uh, from Pope to pupil all the way down. We ain't interested in evangelizing. We're interested in going along to get along. That is true. But I feel that something is cooking up though. There, there, there's still stuff happening underneath the surface. And I Boy, feel I, like uh, Catholics I, in, in, as a whole I feel like we're praying more. I feel like the devout are really are really putting putting big numbers up, and I feel like well, that's how I, Roe v. Wade got overturned. I certainly would agree with you. Uh, I just think that it's important that we remember that the prayers and actions of each of us are required. Right. If anything decent is going to come out of all this, if we don't all try to do to do our best and to pull our weight then uh, the thing will come a cropper and God's will will be accomplished in some other way and with some other instruments, which will be fine for him and fine for them, but not much uh, good for us. Right. I mean, honestly, 
I would rather see a Catholic government in Washington and the National Cathedral uh, be Catholic. And the 50 states, as I have known them, somewhat resembling their current state, their current thing, rather than a group of small Catholic kingdoms constantly at war with each other. Right. But who knows what we'll have in 500 years. The best part of it is we won't be around to be upset by it. If we're in heaven, all this will seem like a bad dream, and we'll be putting our energies to interceding for the uh, for the true, the good, and the beautiful. If we go to hell, of course, uh, it won't matter. We'll each be on our own agonies. Does that make me a bad person if I don't care what it's like in 500 years? I wouldn't say it makes you a bad person, but I would say it makes you a little bit imprudent, especially if you have children. If I have, well, I didn't say I wouldn't care about what happens in 100 years. Because my children aren't going to be alive and my grandchildren aren't going to be alive 500 years from now. You don't know that. What if they find a, a life-extending uh, chemical in fox bodies? Did it ever occur to you that foxes might have... Uh, Sounds like stuff? witchcraft to me. Sounds like alchemy. No, it's called science. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the old, the old joke, what's the difference between voodoo and economics? What? Voodoo has a success rate. <laughs> oh, man. All right. That's going to do it for this episode. Um, Are you feeling the slightest bit less vulpophobic? Um, maybe a little bit. All right. Maybe a little bit, Charles. Maybe a little bit. Cute little fox. <sighs> All right, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Off the Menu. We'll see you here next week on YouTube and all week long on our radio broadcasting and podcasting partners, the Crusade Channel Talk Radio, the way it should be at crusadechannel.com. Well, the way to do Mardi Gras right. Wow. There we yeah, go. Yeah, see? I've got a question for you, though. Yeah. What is it if it's Monday? It's Off the Menu. What if there are CODs asked for? If there are CODs asked for, well, sorry, no CODs. I see. And what about the soul you save? But the soul you save may be your own. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Throw a little curveball in there. <laughs> I'd rather save my soul than get CODs anyway. Oh, see you next week, everyone. God bless you all. Take care and happy Lincoln's birthday. <laughs> <laughs>